Well, we are in what I have called a couple of times anyway, uh, Psalm 119 challenged. I am convinced from this psalm that God wants his word to take over our lives, to take over our lives completely. And so we have this Psalm 119 challenge. Two weeks ago, I asked you to read Psalm 119 in your own preparation for worship last Sunday. Uh, Last Sunday, I introduced you to the structure and the content and the purpose of the psalm uh, to aid your understanding in reading God's Word. And hopefully you may have read it again this week uh, as we prepare this morning. I want to do a a little biblical theological work. I I want us to look at Psalm 119 in the Old Testament, but see how it's connected to the New Testament. Uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in this study. I, again, we're, we're studying the Psalms as they kind of come up in my own personal devotional time. There is, there is reason to the randomness, uh, but it's in me. And, uh, and I spent quite a bit of time reading through Psalm 119, and I spent quite a bit of time on this biblical theological connection. And so some way or another, I've got to get some sermons out of it. And so we've, you know, we're just going to have to look at it this way this morning uh, so that it's productive. The word is profitable for us, right? Uh, so... If Psalm 119 is true, then the Word of God, the Scriptures, should be true and useful for believers in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament when the psalmist wrote them, right? If it's what it claims to be. And if we can see that to be true in the New Testament writings, we should be all the more confident ourselves that all of the Word of God is true, even for us today, and even for new believers in the days to come, right? That's right. So that's the, that's the Psalm 119 challenge as we pick it up this morning. And if you haven't done the prior reading, that's okay. That's the wonderful thing about the Psalm 119 challenge. You can just pick up right here and, and move forward. So let's, let's do this this morning. Let's, uh, if you have, a, you have a bulletin in your hand, the, psalm, uh, the sermon outline is on the back of that. We're actually going to begin in the New Testament, and, uh, and we're going to ping back to the Old Testament, to Psalm 119, to see these connections. There are no direct quotes, but there are definite theological connections uh, to Psalm 119. And so if you look at your sermon outline, you'll see this sermon theme. The blessings that flow from faith in God's word that are cataloged in Psalm 119 are visible in the lives of Christians in the New Testament. God's faithfulness through his enduring word should increase our love for Christ, strengthen our obedience to the gospel, and cause us to delight even in prayer. So I'd like to begin first by taking us to Acts chapter 7, verse 8. I'll even even start just a little bit in in chapter 6. You remember in Acts chapter 6 that the church chose seven men of good repute to serve the church by administering the benevolence ministry so that no one in need would be neglected. One of them, named Stephen, was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 5, describes Stephen that way. And then here's what happened next. Look with me at chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. What was happening at that time, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Pretty surprising. The power of God's word is increasing. Even even the priests are now uh, coming to saving faith. Verse 8, and Stephen, this one that was introduced to us just a little bit earlier, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So, so the Jews in the city of the various synagogues have banded together and they're, they're coming to oppose Stephen and the increase of God's word. Verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face 
of an angel. So you have them coming against um, Stephen and the gospel. They're, they're bringing false charges. They're lying and they know it, but they don't care. They're just against him, and they're against his Christ. And so they make up all these lies. They seize him. They take him into custody. You have to remember that back then, you've got a joining, right, of church and state, if you will. So theological authorities like the priests and the scribes and the temple uh, servants are also a legal authority. So there's legal persecution based on lies against Stephen and against the gospel. And that's what's happening. And even as they're doing that, even as they're lying and pointing at him, they look at his face and he has a face like an angel. Now that doesn't mean that, that Stephen was just this really good looking young boy. It's not what that means. What is an angel? A messenger. That's what the word means. He's a, he has a face that is, is seemingly about to speak a word from God. He's got the face of an angel. And so what does Stephen go on to say to these hostile Jews? In chapter 7, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Stephen is going to speak. And he is going to speak God's word. He recounts from God's word the history of the Jewish people to them. And what was his source of the history and truth about the Jewish people? It was the word of God. The same word of God that he had often sung about as a young Jewish man from Psalm 119. It's a well-known psalm. They sang it. It was part of their worship. He knows it. He told them about their forefathers, beginning with Abraham. He recounted the true stories of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He told of God using Moses to lead them out of bondage in Egypt and of their subsequent disobedience. He told them of God using Joshua to lead them into the promised land and of their subsequent disobedience. He told of all the prophets who had spoken the word of God to them and how they persecuted and even killed them. We're getting towards the end of chapter 7, if you wanted to follow along. That's, that's all that Stephen has said here. And where does Stephen end his speech? Where does he land? He recounted all of the Old Testament word of God to point to Jesus and his gospel word. Pick up in verse 52. Stephen finishes, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's just, that's just rich, isn't it? Jesus is the righteous one whom they have rejected. This is after Christ's uh, uh, crucifixion on the cross. They received the law as delivered by an angel and they're hearing it again from a man who has a face like an angel. Do you see the, see the correspondences there? You know the rest of the story. But it's just too good to not go on reading. Pick up in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's talking about Jesus. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now here's my question to you this morning. Does that narrative of Stephen sound like the story of a man who is dying? Does it sound like the story of a man who is dying? As he tells his persecutors 
that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus and his gospel. Jesus, the living word of God, appears to him. Does it sound like he's dying? And as the stones impact his body, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Like now, receive my spirit. Does it sound like he's dying? And falling to his knees, he pleads with Jesus not to hold this sin of murder against these murderers. Does it sound like a man who's dying? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is not the story of a man who is dying. That is the true account of a man who is leaving this life to go on living. That's what that is. How? He is being stoned. By what power is he going on living? Well, look back with me to something Stephen said about Moses here in chapter 7. We didn't read it before. We're going to read it now, picking up in verse 37. Stephen told them, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up for you, a prophet like me from your brothers, He's talking about Jesus, the final prophet. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on the Mount Sinai and with our fathers. This Moses, he received living oracles to give to us. What are oracles? Words. Words. God gave to Moses on the mount living words. And Moses brought them down to the people. The Old Testament is the living word of God given to his people through Moses, which is exactly what Psalm 119 says it is. In Psalm 119 verse 50, this is your promise in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Your promise, one of the descriptors of the word of God, gives life. It's a living word. It's a living word. In Stephen's affliction, the living word of God, which he had just given a prolonged speech on, comforted him. Comforted him and gave him life. More than comfort, God's living word was the power by which Stephen persevered in his final God-ordained painful moments To live, Jesus, the living word of God, was with Stephen as if to say, he appeared. Come, Stephen. Come, Stephen. You're not dying. I'm here, and I've promised you life just a little bit further. Just a little bit further. Come and have your life. In Psalm 119, verse 25, the psalmist prays, Give me life according to your word. It's a living word. That is the gospel in Psalm 119. The living word of salvation that Stephen, later in the New Testament, had received and believed. And it is the very word on his lips proclaimed for others to hear and believe, even as God kept his promise of salvation to Stephen through Jesus Christ. Now, Stephen was just a sinful man who received the Holy Spirit of God when he received saving faith in Jesus. Do you have saving faith in Jesus, in the living Word of God? It's got to be the first question for us all this morning. Have you laid down your life at His feet and by faith received spiritual life from Christ? Can you say truthfully, Though I die, yet shall I live. Stephen could. Stephen became the first martyr of the church, a bold gospel man because he was full of grace and power. The word tells us he was full of grace and power. And that grace and power, brothers and sisters, was the grace and power of the word of God in him. The same living word of God we hold in our hands this morning when you hold your Bible in your lap. That's good news. It's a life-giving word. 
And it's the same word of God that the Apostle Paul commended to Timothy. I want you to look at this connection. Paul had assigned Timothy a tough job as pastor of the church in Ephesus. Timothy's fighting off false teachers and the influence of evil men who have left the faith but are still hanging around the church. Don't you like that? Don't you like, won't you just go away? No, I think we'll hang around and continue to spread this false word and break apart this church. So to encourage him, Paul tells Timothy to rely 100% on the word of God for his own sake, for his own soul, and for the sake of his church. So look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. beginning in verse 14. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture, he describes He describes those ancient and sacred writings. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All the things that as pastor of the church in Ephesus, Timothy's been charged to do. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says that the word of God, the same word of God that the psalmist glorifies in Psalm 119 is literally the Word of God. I mean, I mean, like, exactly the Word of God. He says that Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. And what are those Scripture good for? Well, first, the Word of God is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ, which is Timothy's ministry, to do the work of an evangelist and our ministry, Christ has commissioned his church to call people to follow the way of Jesus and to obey his word, all peoples, everywhere, at all times. So God has spoken to save and to sanctify. The sacred writings are not updated or revised in any way. Rather, they're handed down. Handed down just as they are, which is profitable. Everybody likes a prophet, right? How about a spiritual prophet? Yes. Paul would have known this, not only from his ministry, which he saw and experienced, but from his study of Psalm 119, particularly verses 97 to 104. Turn back with me, if you would, to Psalm 119. We're going to look at this stanza beginning in verse 97. Well, Scott, aren't you playing a little fast and loose with the facts there. How do you know Paul read this? Because he tells us he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, scholar of scholars. He was at the height of his profession as an expert of the law, even as he persecuted the church under the name of Saul. Listen to this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. That's the psalmist's way of saying God's word is of great practical use to the church because it teaches and it reproves and it corrects and it trains in righteousness. So that each of us would be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible you hold in your hand is an ancient and sacred writing, and it's living and active, able to save, able to equip, able to complete, able to make us complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you should be asking yourself is, am I putting God's word to these good uses? Am I putting God's word to these good uses? 
Ask yourself, am I really interested in becoming not just a little more, but a lot more like Christ right now in this life? Well, you know, if I read God's word and I see that I should be pure and humble and charitable and generous, if, maybe if I would do those things a little bit, you know, I can say yes. I'm a man of God, increasing in godliness. While at the very same time, because I've felt this, and I think you may have too, using that very same incremental step as a reason not to go too far. Don't want to go too far. Might have to give up things I really like and have become comfortable with if I go too far. People will start pointing at that crazy guy if I go too far. If I want to really become a lot like Jesus Christ, it's going to make me look a lot different from the people around me, maybe even the people in my church. Do you want to really grow in your sanctification? Are you really interested in becoming more like Christ? Because it'll be different. There's a sense in which we can say that this gospel word is Christ himself. That if we become more conformed to this word, become more confirmed to Christ-likeness. That's how the Holy Spirit inspired the author of the Hebrews to write his letter beginning long ago. And at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the living word of God. And he goes on to say, that Jesus is the living word of God in whom God has spoken to us in these last days and he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. You know, it's, it's kind of special when an athlete trains their entire life, and I mean their entire life, to be able to go to the Olympics and perform and win the gold. And they ascend a platform, and that gold medallion is placed around their neck, and they raise their hands in victory, and it's, it's a fairly glorious thing in terms of sport. It's pretty radiant. The gold shines and sparkles on the TV screen. Jesus is the very radiance and the glory of God. How spectacular. How impressed we should be. That radiant glory, that light, which points us to a common theme in Scripture and about Scripture, which is that the Word of God is light. That light is particularly needy when you're in a dark place. You know what it's like. You're in a dark room. You're searching for the light switch because you can't see anything. The Apostle Peter saw the light, didn't he? When he ascended the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter saw the Shekinah glory, the radiant glory of God, and he heard the very voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. And from that experience, he applies the quality of light to the Word of God in 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 and find verse 16. So Peter's writing a letter to the church and he's reminding him of this. He's reminding them of the teaching of the word of God and he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses on the mountain of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, that is his transfiguration, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, that Shekinah glory of God that shone all around them on the mountaintop, and said, This is my beloved Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Where does Scripture come from? Where does the Word of God come from that Peter's proclaiming? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter connects some dots for us. How is God the author of this, which we see as print on a page, when we know most of the men who actually penned it. Because those godly men were instruments of God. Writing instruments of God. The Holy Spirit of God inspired every word of Scripture through the real lives of real men. So that their personalities and their circumstances form the real life context of God's usable, profitable word. And where is the dark place into which the light of God's word shines brightest? Did you read it? Hearts. It shines brightly in the dark hearts of sinful men. One of the most famous verses from Psalm 119 is verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You might even have that embroidered and hanging on your on your dining room wall, or maybe it's a little magnet on your refrigerator. Your word is a lamp to my feet, and it's a light to my path. And that says volumes about the word of God. And what are the circumstances of the psalmist's life in stanza, uh, the 14th stanza? Well, he says in verse 107, he says, I am severely afflicted. I am severely afflicted. And so he prays, give me life, Lord. Oh, Lord, according to your word. So especially in affliction, especially in darkness, he keeps God's word in his heart, which he says down in verse 11 of the same, uh, of the same stanza in Psalm 119. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Both Peter and the psalmist have a deeper and much richer notion of God's word being light even than we do from this. I mean, they, they were raised in the Hebrew Scriptures. They know the words of the prophet Isaiah. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 42. When, when Peter says that the Word of God is light, he's bringing all of this forward in force. In Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah prepares us to see God's end times servant, beginning in verse 6. This is future prophecy at that time. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring about the promise, the prisoners from the dungeon and from, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is God's word Embodied in God's future end times servant, you know who he is, who's the light of the world. The light of the world that's shrouded in darkness. So God's end times servant, Jesus Christ, is light himself. Flip forward just a, just a few chapters to uh, chapter 60 in verse, I'm sorry, in Isaiah. And find verse 19. Isaiah has, in chapter 42, prepared us for Jesus, the end-time servant of God who will be light, and now he's preparing us for the future glory of God. Pick up in verse 19. What's going to happen when that future kingdom comes and is established? Well, the sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, 
and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch from my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. So in the new heaven and the new earth, God himself will be our light, and there'll be no shadows, and the light won't go down like the sun in time for the moon to rise to keep granting light. God will be our light. So we're not only prepared for this light, but we're called to hope in it. Hope in it. Because we will be made righteous, Isaiah said, and God will be glorified, Isaiah said. Light, what does light symbolize? It symbolizes the presence of God. Jesus, the end time servant, will be present as light. In the new kingdom, God will be present with us as light. Light symbolizes the presence of God. God is present with us in the light of his word, which you have now, and in the light of his son, if you believe in him by faith now, and he will be present with us in the age to come. And if you receive this light, and if you receive this light, do you doubt that light? Of course not. He will be present with us in the age to come, so we can endure darkness because we have certain and sure hope in the light, the very presence of God to come. The very practical question you should be asking yourself, are you satisfied? with the comfort in affliction that comes from hope alone. Are you satisfied in affliction to be comforted by hope alone? You see, when we're in affliction, when we're in trials, when we're in difficulties, whatever that might be, whatever that might look like, whatever those circumstances are, That's what we pray to be changed, isn't it? Of course we do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Lord, this is hard. Please take it away. But when the Lord doesn't do that, and oftentimes He does not, the reason being, He's going to prove Himself faithful with us during the time of affliction so that we might be sanctified and more like Christ who suffered affliction. Are you satisfied then with the comfort that comes from hope alone? That there is life to come. Because the psalmist says he's satisfied with the comfort that comes, even if the only way that it comes is by hope alone. Hope in the promises of God because they're sure and they're certain and they're forever and this is just for a little while. Because you might find yourself in that place. You might find yourself in a place where there's no other person or means of comfort except the promises of God. And when you get there, God says, that will be enough. John talks to us about the light in John chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We've looked at it a couple of times recently in the Psalms. And in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, John describes this light and much more. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through Him, and without Him there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's profound. Just the light analogy. Jesus is the true light. 
that shines in darkness. What darkness is being described? It's the darkness of this fallen world. Jesus shines in it. He's the living word who appeared to Stephen in his darkest hour and shined. Stephen knew Jesus' words from John chapter 8, verse 12. Flip forward just a little bit to John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus simply says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Psalm 119 and the New Testament agree that Jesus is the light of life. Your life, if your life has been taken over by the living word of God. The psalmist and the New Testament writers also agree that just because we have light doesn't mean the darkness goes away. That's why Jesus is with us, to walk with us in our trials when they come. Which is where I want us to go next. There's encouragement. There's encouragement from the Word of God in difficult times. In Romans chapter 15, Paul talks about hope. Hope that encourages Christians to persevere in love that produces joy. So let's take a a brief look at Romans chapter 15. And I'll make a few comments along the way. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul says, let's do spiritual good to one another. Your spiritual neighbor. Let's do spiritual good to one another, even if it means we don't get our own way. Right? Because that's the example that Jesus set for us. That's what he says in those verses. But you see, there's, a, there's an issue in the church in Rome, the church that he's writing to. There are Jewish Christians, and there are Gentile Christians in the church, but they're not getting along. To put this as briefly and simply as I can, the Jewish Christians find the behavior of their new Gentile brothers disgusting. They come from a terrible lifestyle, they don't follow the same cleanliness standards, and you should watch them eat. It's disgusting what they eat. And the Gentile Christians find the attitudes of their new Jewish brothers arrogant. They're so stuffy and arrogant, always saying we need to live more like them. So how are they going to get along and even do spiritual good to one another? Well, verse 4 is the key. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It's golden. I want to read it again. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction so that, endurance, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. What was written in the former days for our instruction? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the Word of God. He's holding his Old Testament Bible in his hand. The sacred writings. The living Word. What Psalm 119 verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about. The law. Torah. God's instructions for living. What we talked about last week. And how does that word profit us today? It encourages us to endure, or you might say persevere, in God's instruction. And how does it do that? Why should we go on living the hard Christian life, the difficult Christian life? Well, we're encouraged to do it. We're motivated to do it through the hope that we find in its promises. There are promises that go along with the commands. So let's put those three things together. Hope, in the promises of God's word, encourages us to persevere in doing the instructions of God's word. Let's see how Paul applies this. Psalm 119, if you will, to the church in Rome. First, he prays. Just like the psalmist prays. 
Except for maybe the first two verses, all of Psalm 119 is a prayer. It's all spoken to God. For God to bring about this through his word. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You're going to have to love one another. Jesus welcomed disgusting Gentiles into the church, and Jesus uh, welcomed these uh, arrogant uh, Jews into the church, and and you're going to have to welcome one another. So just get used to doing it. And then, Paul teaches God's word to both Jew and Gentile, beginning in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs, the promise of salvation, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Jesus, the Son of God, became the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 to save the Jews who would believe, confirming the Abrahamic covenant. God promised a Savior in his word. And Jesus' confirmation of that. Salvation has come to the Jew in Jesus. At the same time, in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus revealed the mercy of God to Gentiles who would believe. So that now, both Jew and Gentile believers would praise and glorify God together. And because Jesus is the root of Jesse, in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 and in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10, do you want to read that? Let's read that. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Scott, we're having to flip all through this just for one verse. Yes. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. The prophet says, In that day, in our day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, salvation for the Jews comes from this root of Jesse, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The Gentile nations will also come to this same root of Jesse. He's saying, you're both saved by the same root of Jesse. You're both saved by Jesus, the same one. The promise that came from the word to Jew and Gentile. So Jewish believers hope in the Savior promised in the word of God and to the Jews, and Gentiles also hope in the Savior who was promised to the Jews in the word of God. That Jesus is the Gentile Savior as well as the Jewish Savior. There is only one Savior. And He is the Savior of all peoples, both Jew and Gentile. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather at His throne and praise Him as Savior. So Paul prays the Word of God again in verse 13. Back to, back to Romans Back to Romans chapter 15, our last verse, verse 13 in that section. Paul prays. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And where is that hope found? Where is that hope found? Paul tells us, or the psalmist rather tells us in Psalm 119 verse 50, this is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me hope. Your word gives me hope. Which positions us to further apply this same hope in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 13. 
flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 30. It's an interesting place. I'm going to have to sort of thread the needle here. You know that chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is referred to as the resurrection chapter. And in it, Paul says that if Jesus has not been resurrected from the dead, then we do not have that hope that we've been talking about. Paul openly admits that a dead Savior is no Savior at all. No resurrection would mean no hope. Again, we're looking at this verse to find hope in the Word of God in times of affliction. And in the midst of this glorious chapter, Paul asks this thought-provoking question in verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. This just sticks out to me. He says, in the middle of it, Why are we in danger every hour? Why are we in danger every hour? And here's how I think we should look at this. If the opposition, if the opposition to the truth of the resurrection is right, that Jesus was not raised from the dead, if Christianity is based on a lie, and if there is no hope at all in the Word of God, the ancient writings, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then why are we so vehemently and even violently opposed everywhere we go in the world as Christians? Why? Why are we in danger every hour if that's the case? Now you and I and Paul know that Jesus was in fact resurrected from the dead. But we still have to deal with that affliction, don't we? Where do you find comfort when unbelievers persecute you? Well, turn to Psalm 119. The stanza beginning in verse 105. Again, the 14th stanza. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Your word is my light. Your testimonies are my joy, even when I'm severely afflicted, even when the wicked have laid a snare for me again. Your word has given me life. Your testimonies are my heritage, and I will praise you. God's word is our hope. Yes, we can rightly say Jesus himself is our hope. Let's read that stanza again, and instead of hearing it as your prayer to God in a time of affliction or trial, I want you to hear it as Jesus' prayer to God. Hear it as Jesus' prayer to his Father. Again, Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offering of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Whenever Jesus prays in the Gospels, he prays the Psalms more than any other verses in Scripture. I think we have good reason to think that Jesus prayed these very words to his Father. I think we have good reason to think that. And I want you to look at one phrase in particular. It's the first half of verse 109. Look at this, look at this phrase. I hold 
my life in my hand continually. Now that's a Hebrew thought. It's not really a, it's not really a Greek New Testament thought. It's a Hebrew thought. I hold my life in my hand It's a curious and it's an infrequent phrase, so let's look at it at a couple of places to see how it's used. In Judges chapter 12, verse 3, Jephthah, one of the judges, said, I took my life in my hand and I crossed over against the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into my hand. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 5, Jonathan, David's friend, spoke well of David to his father, King Saul, saying about David, for he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, speaking of Goliath, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. See, both of those examples turned out well. They result in salvation that comes from the hand of the Lord. The psalmist's life is in his hand continually, he says. He seems to be in perpetual danger because... In verse 110, evil men have set a trap for him. Nonetheless, verse 112, he will do God's will to the very end and forever. It's starting to sound like somebody. Starting to sound like somebody. And we can find that somebody in John chapter 10. This Hebrew phrase is represented in Greek in the New Testament in John chapter 10. It sounds a little differently doesn't really have the hand part in there. But it is conveying the same Hebrew idea. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. You see, he's more committed to the flock than the hired hand. And so in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There it is. There's the Hebrew written in Greek. The word picture of Jesus' life being in his hand as he lays it down. The word picture is missing, but it's the same idea. It's exactly what he's doing. And he repeats it in verse 17. John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Not only does Jesus take his life into his hand and lay it down for his sheep, but he takes it up again. Follow me. The psalmist held his life in his hand as he faced snares and performed the statutes of God to the end. Jephthah and David took their lives into their hands to fight the enemies of God and the Lord gave them victory. So too, Jesus held his life in his hand as he did the perfect will of God and he laid down his life of his own volition and more He took up his life again of his own volition. He goes on to tell his disciples in verse 18, No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge to lay down and take up his life, he received from his Father, God Almighty. You see, Jesus has received a charge, a mission to accomplish salvation for sinful people. No one made Jesus go to the cross at Calvary. Nobody wrenched Jesus' life out of his hands. No, the good shepherd held his life in his hand and he purposefully placed his life on the cross. Why? Because there he would pay with his own blood the price for our sins. Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And after three days, having fully atoned for the sins of his people, he took up his life again in his own hand. He's the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them 
out of my hand. So now we can say that Jesus holds our lives in his hand. Which is the reason for our great hope in Christ. Even in affliction and trials and difficulties. And it leads us to examine one more New Testament passage that I think reflects Psalm 119 this morning. It's in Luke chapter 21, verse 33. In Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 29, Jesus tells his disciples a parable about a fig tree and the future coming of the kingdom of God. And when that happens, it'll be when the Son of Man returns. The disciples would learn, as we already know, that Jesus was going away. Jesus is now, now, our time, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, awaiting the moment of his return, which sets the stage for this very relevant question. How can we maintain confidence of faith here, now, in this life, when Jesus is away from us? You see, in Luke chapter 21, he was speaking to disciples who were with him. He was with them. But he's going away. Just as Jesus is away from us now. And this is what Jesus says in verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Dependent disciples. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Yes, our confidence is in Christ himself. But Christ hasn't gone away and left us just with that thought. Hoping we'll remember it when we need it, because we never do. We forget. And we stop looking at him, we start looking at our circumstances, and, and it goes downward from there. He knows we're forgetful. He knows we're so easily distracted. So he has given us his true words, which will never pass away. He's saying that to you, disciples. And the psalmist knew this. Listen to his confidence in the word of God in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Nothing on earth can change God's word. Verse 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. The righteousness of Christ, that is ours by faith in him, is a lasting and enduring forever righteousness. Verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The word of God endures forever. The word that's been given to us, the word of salvation. The truth that we have from the word of God, that is, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, the words of the apostles in the New Testament, and the words from Jesus himself is this. That although Jesus is away, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he is yet with us. Both are true. He is away, and yet, he is still with us. Just as he was with Stephen. He is present in the truth of his holy word, the Bible that you hold in your hands. He is present in the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. And he is present every time you talk to him in prayer. Every time. So the blessings that flow from faith in God's word that are cataloged in Psalm 119 are visible in the lives of Christians in the New Testament and in our Christian lives. This proof of God's faithfulness through his enduring word should increase our love for Christ. Is it? Is it increasing your love for Christ? It should strengthen our obedience to the gospel. Is it? Are you resolved to follow through on his commands and cause us to delight in prayer, to delight in God's living word, the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word to us. It is indeed a gift from God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive it. Lord, we thank you for its many uses in our lives, that it is the word that saves, that it is the word that sanctifies, that it is the word that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom we believe and place all of our trust. So we pray that you would, you would bless us with faithfulness, love, strength, obedience, endurance, and delight in Christ. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.